Green Street Radio is a production of Grassroots Environmental Education. Learn more about us and our programs at www.grassrootsinfo.org or follow us on Facebook at Grassroots Info and on Twitter at Grassroots E-N-V-E-D. Welcome to Green Street, a project of Grassroots Environmental Education. I'm your host, Doug Wood, here with my co-host, Patty. Autism is often called a spectrum disorder because it affects individuals differently and to varying degrees. The autism spectrum disorders encompass a wide range of symptoms, from social awkwardness to a complete inability to interact and communicate. There's no known single cause, but there are many theories, and research is being done on many fronts. On this edition of Green Street, we'll talk about the latest research and the state of the science with Dr. Irva hertz Pichotto, professor at the School of Medicine and deputy director of the Center for Children's Environmental Health at the University of California, Davis. Here's our interview with Dr. Irva hertz Pichotto. Let's start by getting a, a, a good definition of autism, followed with you know how that definition has changed over the years and all the different discoveries that we've made about the different manifestations of this. So autism as a neurodevelopmental disorder, the three defining domains of deficits are social reciprocal relations, communications, and then a pattern of repetitive behaviors or restricted interests. And those core three features were exactly what was defined back in 1943 by Leo Kanner, who published a paper describing uh, a series of 11 patients he had seen, and then he coined the term. Autism spectrum disorder is essentially autism, Asperger's syndrome, and a catch-all called pervasive developmental delay not otherwise specified. So when does autism typically get diagnosed? Does it usually appear at a certain age or within a certain age range? The the symptoms are expected to have appeared by 36 months of age. Now, that doesn't mean the diagnosis is made at that time, but that the symptoms were present, or at least some of the symptoms. Now, there appears to be, just as as you mentioned in the opening of the show, variation in the way the condition manifests. There also appears to be variation in the trajectory that leads to that uh, those behaviors, so that some children appear to be developing fairly normally, developing language, interacting socially, smiling, responding to, uh, to, to people around them. And then they start to withdraw and lose some of those skills, lose language or lose the sociability. So we, we think of that as a regressive form of autism. Wow. This is a, 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 every parent's nightmare. I was going to say, you yeah. know, it must be a, a very frightening thing for parents to see this happening. Yeah, I I mean, I think um, if you've had the child appearing to function fairly, typically, and then they begin to withdraw and and they're losing those skills, I think that's very frightening because, you know, there's like this setback from where you Mm -hmm. were. And now, uh, I'm an epidemiologist. I actually don't work closely with families and I don't do the diagnoses myself. I work very tightly with people in both developmental pediatrics and and psychiatry and and psychology. Mm Um, so mo- my, my experience with autism is, of course, I, I, I see the children in the clinic, but I'm not 
the person who's doing the diagnoses. Sure. Um, so now let's talk about your research and the environmental links that um, that you are actually looking at. You know, this is really important to parents. I mean, I, I unfortunately have known quite a few parents who have autistic children, and they all feel that, you know, that their child began to regress after they had had some vaccinations. So can we first talk about the vaccination theory, if that's possible? Because I think that's where most of our listeners, um, you know, are, sure. are, are thinking when they're thinking about an environmental exposure that might be related. Right. Uh, I do want to say that as an environmental epidemiologist, I've studied many, many environmental exposures in, in relation to lots of different health outcomes. And vaccines has never been particularly high on the list of environmental uh, you know, toxins out there. Mm-hmm. Um, nevertheless, I think this is something that does deserve attention. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly would not want to sweep this concept under the rug without looking at it with, with a really careful scientific method. So the first point is that we have no evidence that vaccines um, in any form are associated with the onset of, of autism or with the higher risk of autism. There's, there's really no data supporting that. That's number one. Number two, there are three different hypotheses that have been put forward. The first one pertains to the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, and this came about from a paper published out of England by a group that looked at patients with gastrointestinal symptoms, and they had a theory that somehow the gut symptoms and autism and and the vaccine were, in fact, related. There's really not any evidence at this point, I think, supporting that, and some studies that would tend to refute that hypothesis. The second hypothesis pertains to the use of a preservative known as thimerosal, which is about 50% mercury that has been used in a number of different vaccines. It was never used in the MMR vaccine. It was used in the diphtheria pertussis tetanus. It is still used in many of the flu vaccines. It is still used in the hepatitis B vaccine. So there have been perhaps five studies attempting to look at that question, I would say that we don't have what I would call rock-solid evidence um, against the thimerosal hypothesis. I I don't think we have any rock-solid evidence in support of it either. As Mm -hmm. I said at the Mm -hmm. beginning, there's no evidence that it does uh, play any role in autism, but um, I would not say that the studies that are out there are, uh, are conclusive. And then the third hypothesis pertains to the sheer number of vaccines that we are challenging these infant immune systems with. And there's virtually no research on that that I've I've seen. And, you know, the the question is, um, even if most of the population can tolerate them, is there potentially a subset of children whose immune systems aren't sufficiently mature to really handle the large number of different vaccines that are given in the first few months you know, of life. Um, we give more than most other countries. That said, vaccines, of course, are an extremely important part of our public health infrastructure, and it's not a question of zero versus any number, but um, many European countries give 15, we give 22. Um, so it, are we kind of just pushing the limit there? And, mm-hmm. and that's a question that, um, you know, I don't think has really seriously been looked at yet. 
You're listening to Green Street on WBAI. We're speaking with Dr. Herva Hertz-Pachoto, who is a professor at the School of Medicine and deputy director of the Center for Children's Environmental Health at the University of California, Davis. So, Dr. Hertz-Pachoto, tell us a little bit about where you are on some of the other environmental exposures. What are you looking at, and what's kind of the state of where we are now? We are beginning to chip away at some of the hypotheses that I think have come more from the scientific community pertaining to neurodevelopmental toxins, uh, everything from viral exposures to pesticides to nutritional factors, um, air pollution. There are any number of, of questions, and some of these factors have been associated with other types of neurodevelopmental deficits. For instance, there have been a number of studies looking at pesticides in relation to cognitive development. There have been a number of studies looking at uh, mercury exposure, and this would be, say, prenatal exposure or early childhood exposure from the environment. Total mercury, of course, is not primarily from vaccines. Um, Much larger amounts are consumed through diet, for instance, fish Mm -hmm. um, is a big source of mercury. So that metals, uh, besides mercury, of course, are of interest. And, you know, the hypotheses related to viral infections, back in the 1970s, we had an epidemic in the United States of rubella. And two independent studies looked at some of the later sequelae of that congenital rubella infection, which can cause a lot of uh, problems. It can cause deafness. It can cause mental retardation. And as it turned out, there appeared to be a fairly high percentage of kids relative to the background rates of autism who showed uh, autistic symptoms or looked as if they frankly had a a full diagnosis. And that led to a few other investigators looking at viral infections during the pregnancy period. So that's been kind of in the background because most of those infections are not around today because we do vaccinate. And so, you know, you wouldn't expect to see congenital rubella cases in Mm -hmm. in the United States for the most part. The one virus that remains with us is influenza, and that's one that's, that's worth looking at. But it was interesting that the studies that were done seemed to show multiple different types of viral infections being associated with a higher risk of autism. And it seems to point not towards the infection itself being a problem, but possibly the response to the virus, potentially the maternal response uh, being, you know, a stronger response than might be tolerated in terms of the fetus because maternal immune factors actually can cross the placenta and influence the, uh, the infant. And then we are interested in maternal diet during the, the prenatal and, and periconceptional period when very critical events happen in brain development. It's, it's this tightly orchestrated process of cells needing to know where to go at exactly the right time, how to, you know, the neurons put out their, their dendrites and um, create these synapses with other neurons. So it's all this cortical wiring that happens in the brain. And, you know, if it's not happening exactly at the right time, that can, can lead 
to lay their developmental problems. I'm curious about how you see, I mean, clearly one of the driving forces for looking at environmental risk factors here is the tremendous growth in autism over mm-hmm. the, you know, over the past couple of decades. You know, when somebody asks you, or if I asked you, what would you attribute that to? What's your best guess? So, first of all, we have to look at how much of it is a true increase and how much of it is an increase that results from more awareness, better diagnostic yeah. tools. And you actually um, you actually did a paper on this, I think. Right. We we concluded that at least some of the increase does appear to be explained by, for instance, younger age at diagnosis, which is part of, of a better awareness and getting the diagnosis earlier in life. Some of it appears to be related to changes in the criteria, the DSM criteria. So, so that, you know, could in, uh, account for some part of this. And then it may be that there are other diagnoses that we are now recognizing that should have been autism, but they were just called mental retardation or, or in some cases perhaps schizophrenia. So, yeah. And another thing that we know and this kind of falls sort of halfway in between the real increase in the artifacts of data. And that is we have parents deferring their childbearing to older ages, and older parental age seems to contribute. But none of this accounts for all of the increase at this point. It doesn't appear, you know, if you add it up and do the, some of the calculations, the best calculations we can do at this time, don't seem to account for all of it. But it may mean that the rise is not quite as steep and severe as we think it has been. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, as I say, I don't think we're yet at the point where we can say, no, there, there was no real rise. I, I think at this point we, we need to uh, consider that there may have been a, a true rise and that whether there was a true rise or not, this is uh, clearly affecting a lot of children. Sure. Um, Can I ask you about one other exposure that has come up that we've read a little bit about, um, and that's ultrasound imaging during pregnancy? Right. Well, that's an interesting one as well. There are you know, biological reasons to think that this, that this could be an important exposure, and certainly it is something that has increased over the last couple of decades in both the number of ultrasounds that are done, how frequently they're done. The equipment gives a higher dose of energy than used to. So this is one of the hypotheses uh, we actually are hoping to look at. One of the big issues is getting funding for a lot of this research. Um, It is true at this point that the amount of money that's going for the search for genes related to autism is a lot more than what is going for environmental factors. We certainly know that there's high recurrence rates in families if you have one child with autism rather than 1 in 110, the probability for another child would be closer to 1 in 10. Mm. So that's a very high increment in risk. Uh, So some genes have been identified. There are some very, very rare genes which confer a high risk to those who have them, but very, very few people have those. So those probably account for a fairly small percentage of cases. But then there are other more common genes, more common variants, that probably interact with either other genes or with environmental factors. I think the idea of gene-environment interaction is a very important one to keep in mind. And in fact, I don't think any case is due to a single exposure or a single gene. I think every 
child whose development has gone off into this direction has probably been affected by several genes and potentially several environmental factors, maybe not all at the same time point, maybe you know, the genes and then maybe some early prenatal influence, maybe some things that happen later in pregnancy or closer to the time of delivery, maybe a few uh, other triggers that happen postnatally and, and cumulatively finally gets to the point where this overwhelms the resilience. Uh, you know, we people, animals, and so forth, we have a certain ability to adapt to these um, insults that happen to us, whether it's an environmental toxin or a, a microbe. And that will vary based on prior aspects of health and development. So uh, somewhere along the line, it, it just reaches that threshold in, in de- during the child's development where they can no longer bounce back. Yeah. There's very interesting discussion about um, the interaction between genes and, and exposures. I know that Sandra Steingraber um, sometimes says that when you look at families and incidents in families, not only do those families share genes, but they also share their environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they drink the same right. water, they breathe the same air, they eat the same food, they're in the home with, you know, in a home right. with the same right. you know, furniture and so on. So it's absolutely true, I guess, with all of this research that's going on, that there's a, certainly a, a multiple factor going on here for, uh, for all of these illnesses. Tomorrow, there's going to be a conference on autism at the National Academy of Science, and you're going to be addressing the group. Uh, can you give us a preview of what you're going to be talking about? Well, many of the things I've actually just talked about, I will talk a little bit about the rise in autism and the degree to which it may be real versus the result of of better diagnosing and, and similar sorts of artifacts. I'll talk a little bit about the study that we're conducting in California known as the CHARGE study. That stands for Childhood Autism Risks from Genetics and the Environment. And the CHARGE study has actually been going on now for about seven years. We've published a few papers, and we have a number that are in process right now. And we are looking at quite a wide array of types of exposures, from environmental toxins to the the world of microbes to the question of maternal conditions during pregnancy, uh, exposures that might include household products. And I'll talk about the genes and environment, the kind of relative balance and, and interactions of those two in autism. And in our group, I, I work with people in a number of other disciplines. I'm an epidemiologist, but I am working, for example, with several immunologists who have looked at the children and noticed a lot of differences in the functioning of the immune systems in children with autism if we compare them to their corresponding age-matched controls. So we think that other things have gone wrong in these children besides the brain, uh, and then that changes kind of the way we look at this. We also took blood samples from the mothers of children with autism, and those mothers not all of them, but there is a small percent of the ones who have a child with autism who appear to be sensitized. They actually make antibodies against fetal brain tissue, and that's not seen in the mothers of the children who are developing typically. 
And in our first paper, we had about 60 in each group. So somewhere about 6 to 12 percent seemed to be making these antibodies of, in the cases, the mothers of the cases, but none of the mothers of the controls were making those antibodies. Um, it changed the way we think about the environment because now we're not just talking about neurotoxins, but we're also talking about immune toxins. And both of those systems, they talk to each other in a pretty intricate way. So lymphocytes, part of our immune system for mounting a response to foreign things in the body, they send messages to each other using chemicals known as cytokines and chemokines. And then it turns out that if you look in the brain, there are receptors for those messengering molecules. And then vice versa, neurons send out neurotransmitters, but the lymphocytes and other immune cells have receptors for neurotransmitters. So we know they talk to each other, these systems. So this is part of the, uh, I think, insights that have come from this first round of research that has been going on and, and that we've been spearheading on not just knowing what are the causes, but looking at mechanisms that might explain um, the way exposures might work to alter brain development. And then we had a paper just last week out uh, that pertains to mitochondrial function, and the mitochondria in the cell are the way the cell generates energy. It's been likened to the battery of each cell. And the mitochondria in brain cells are very, very active. And we, of course, didn't have brain cells from children, but we took their lymphocytes and looked at the functioning of the mitochondria, and, and we actually saw evidence that these mitochondria are not as functional and effective in cases as compared to typically developing controls. Um, are there exposures that you're looking at, exposures that might commonly be found in homes? The uh, polybrominated right. diphenyl ethers, are the, these are the brominated flame mm -hmm. retardants. And, you know, we've banned most types of them, but even the ones that we haven't banned, you know, we're continuing to put them in a lot of household products. The mm -hmm. idea, of course, is to slow the flammability. In other words, if you can retard the speed at which a fire begins to consume, you know, the, the mm -hmm. household products mm -hmm. and your furnishings and so forth, then it gives people more time to get out of the house and, you know, save lives. But uh, on the other hand, the question is, you know, what is the risk-benefit? And are we, uh, first of all, are there alternatives to these compounds? And secondly, if they save X number of lives, if it's a very small number versus if it had a big effect on, on child development, then we really need to look at that risk-benefit ratio. So anyway, so th those are the kinds of chemicals that we are looking at. And again, we don't have any evidence at this point in time Right. Um, but it's, uh, there are a number of chemicals that were not on the radar screen maybe five, six, seven years ago when we started the CHARGE study that we are now hoping to get further funding to keep the study going so that we can expand the, mm -hmm. the kinds of, of chemicals. You've been listening to Green Street, and our guest has been Dr. Irva hertz Pichotto, professor at the School of Medicine and deputy director of the Center for Children's Environmental Health at the University of California at Davis. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street. Thanks for listening. of chemicals that we are looking at. And again, we don't have any evidence at this point in time 
Right. Um, but it's uh, there are a number of chemicals that were not on the radar screen maybe five, six, seven years ago when we started the charge study that we are now hoping to get further funding to keep the study going so that we can expand the, mm-hmm. the kinds of, of chemicals. Green Street Radio is a production of Grassroots Environmental Education. Learn more about us and our programs at www.grassrootsinfo.org or follow us on Facebook at Grassroots Info and on Twitter at Grassroots E-N-V-E-D.